carried me to say this is my final day I died a thousand times my words are Hello! Excited to be here today. We are excited to be here, Michelle. We we got we're first of all we're in the an incredible Gibson recording studios. In and it's Gibson Hills. showroom out in yes. um, Beverly Hills here, and, and it's, it's fancy. Very, it's and uh, it's awesome. And it's got all, everything you wanted because it's all filled with guitars there's guitars everywhere and <laughs> there's a stage for bands and there's these amazing headphones that headphones uh, <laughs> yes the oink oinkyo uh i don't even know what they are but i love them oinko yes oinkyo it's actually they're partners in that no that's what peter said but so anyway we're, we're very to happy here. to be here at gibson today and um we and thank them big big show coming up today yes 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 i can't wait for our rocker babies to hear it um a big shout out to gibson because they were incredible and kind to even let us be here peter peter probably didn't want me to say his name but i'm gonna say it anyway peter's thank you, fantastic peter. thank you peter thank you gibson for being so kind to us joining us today is the legendary gary stromberg we're grateful that you agreed to talk to us, Gary. Thank you, but I wish you wouldn't say legendary. Oh, I love legendary. You're, or no. they say in the UK, ledge. The no, ledge. I'll take that one. Okay, good. Um, while doing research for Elliot Smith episode, um, we realized that we needed to do an episode about substance abuse um, for a few reasons. And it's to give us a better understanding about addiction and the horrors that someone who is suffering from substance, substance abuse goes through and also kind of to dismantle the idea that about, you know, the whole idea that the sex, drugs and rock and roll uh, lifestyle is cool. Because as we know that that lifestyle with fame thrown in uh, for good measure can lead to tragedy. Yeah. It's you know? like pouring gasoline. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally. I mean, we can list it for days. The first known use of the phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll can be seen in a 1969 Life magazine article to describe the counterculture movement of the 1960s. British singer-songwriter Ian Drury popularized the phrase sex and drugs and rock and roll in his 1977 song titled Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. The single did not chart and sold around 19,000 copies, but won critical acclaim. Released in the middle of the hugely popular punk rock movement, the song was misinterpreted, as it often is to this day, as a song about excess, as its title and chorus would suggest. Drury always maintained that the song was not a punk anthem, but a suggestion that there is more to life than a 9-to-5 existence. And everybody, I think, even probably listening to the podcast, has been affected by alcoholism mm -hmm. and substance abuse. So I guess before we get started and we start going forward, um, I'd like to give a little short bio about you. Gary co-founded uh, Gibson and Stromberg, which is a large, influential music publishing relations firm of the 60s and 70s. His company represented such luminaries as the Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, uh, 
actually, they went into Boys to Men. Wow, the new Diamond, The Doors, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I love Earth, Wind, and Fire. Elton John, Three Dog Night, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And Stromberg also spent time in the film business. But you missed my one of my favorite clients, and I'm going to put him in there, Ray Charles. Ray Charles, oh. yes. My grandmother loved Ray Charles. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. Okay. He should have been first. <laughs> he should have been right. first. Um, but uh, you co-produced, you know, mm. motion pictures. One of them we will talk about today. That's one of my favorite films of all time. And my family were like, we were all like, oh. You know, we got so excited. Um, but you worked on a co-produced a film called The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. That sounds kind of, I've never heard of that. That's but. Shaquille O'Neal's favorite movie. What? Oh, really? What? That for being obscure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's also co-written uh, three books, The Heart of They Fall, Feeding the Fame, and Second Chances. And he currently runs the Blackbird Group, which is a public relations firm in Marina Del Rey. Um, he's also active in a lot of service work. Um, he's past president of Board of Directors of Positive Directions, the Center for Prevention and Recovery. Uh, he's a member of, and a Board of Directors member of the Stepping Stones Foundation, the last home of Bill and Lois Wilson, founders of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, respectively. He's also a member of the Board of Directors of Faces and Voices and Recovery in Washington, D.C., and it's a national advocacy organization. And he's also served as a mentor for over 12 years, currently with the L.A. Teamworks, yes. um, which is an after-school mentoring program in L.A. Um, and he has two kids, one of them which I know, who's in the music business, uh, David Stromberg. Hard to call them kids anymore. <laughs> I know. they're Young adults. <laughs> young adults. So, Gary, before each of one of the episodes, I always look for a quote that kind of encompasses the person mm -hmm. um, that we're the subject of the person that we're talked about. And this quote, I thought of you, because you said something, I caught it in one of your lectures, but it's a quote by Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson once said, that talent alone won't make you a success. Neither will being in the right place at the right time, unless you are ready. The most important question is, are you ready? And I think when I look back at your, you know, your experiences, you were at the right place at the right time and you heeded the call of being ready, I think. Well, I'm not familiar with that quote, but that's certainly certainly true in my case. Mm -hmm. And I attribute a lot of the success I had to being at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And it takes, I, I, I'm sometimes kind of embarrassed about the successes I had because I didn't do a lot to deserve them or earn them. I didn't go to college. I didn't work very hard. I was at the right place at the right time. When mm -hmm. I, for instance, when I started my music career, I started this little PR company. Yeah. And the first three clients that walked into our offices were the doors, Three Dog Night and Steppenwolf. You yeah. know? They weren't anything amazing. when they when they came to us. They were just starting out. They were guys, young guys on the street just like I was. Right. So I was there at the right time in the right place. I'm sure there were many, way more talented people than I was who just didn't, you know, they weren't at that place where I was. Yeah. And I got lucky. But that's okay because that's still, I mean, there are a lot of people who didn't go to college. Yes, that doesn't mean anything. No, yeah, there's you a lot know, of brilliant people. I mean, Steve Jobs yes. dropped out of Yes, no, there's Harvard. a lot. Of, I mean, not yes. Harvard, but he dropped out of college. It's it certainly no sign Bill of your Gates. success. Yeah, Bill Gates dropped out yes. of college. But, you know, 
And they were, you know, outliers by um, Malcolm Gladwell talked about being at the right place at the right, right time, time, you know, and they were at the right time of the 50s when they were into computers and those guys all became pioneers. So you were actually meant to be where you were. Well, I, I had a you, love for music. I think you earned And an it. appreciation for it. So being yes, at the did. right place at the right time in, in conjunction with mm -hmm. being somebody who really loved love music, music that helped. If yes. you have been didn't care anything about music and you met the doors, you wouldn't have, it you wouldn't know, have mattered. Yeah. They yeah. So I think you earned it because you well, did know, you know, you, you just luck played that a call. big part of it. I would, I know. And it continued. There was a lot of instances in right. my career over the years where I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. So yeah. I consider myself a very fortunate guy. Well, you know what? That's, That's the great thing in life to and be. It keeps fortunate. you right sized, mm -hmm. by the yes. way, where you think it's not mm -hmm. all about you. That's true. Mm -hmm. You know, cool. Hollywood and, and, and show business is filled with people who think that it's all about them. Yeah. You know, and well, for in my case, it's certainly not all about me. It was, I, right. I'm a lucky guy. But you know, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So I think that because I think this is going to be great. This is going to be great. Our <laughs> listeners are just, I was so excited about today, by the way. For, Thank um, you. Yeah. And shout out to your, to Miss Sherry. But I'm going to show Gary a picture. Your audience can't see this picture. They can't see the picture, and so no, they can't see the picture. Oh yeah, especially the one we won't talk about the roller derby girl. But anyway, I'm going to show Gary a picture, and I'll describe it, and then I have questions to go along with the picture. And the first one is you as a baby. See, I think were you a toddler? Yeah, you were a toddler then. Where were you? I didn't even know they had cameras. Well, nobody knows you have cameras at that age. Where were you born? I was born right here in Los Angeles. Oh, you're in Yeah. What was your your home life like? And I asked that question because you stated your <laughs> lectures that you acted out negatively early on in your well. Like, what made see. you want to act out? This is a strange thing to be consider a problem, but mm -hmm. I was adored as a child. I had a mother who just thought I was the baby Jesus incarnate. <laughs> she thought I was the handsomest, the smartest. She thought I was destined for greatness. And she kept feeding me all this information. It felt good when you're a little kid and your mother's telling you how wonderful you are and how smart you are and all that stuff. But once I ventured out of my house and into the world, even as early as grammar school, mm -hmm. and I started to be able to compare myself with others, I became aware of I wasn't the sharpest pencil in the box, and I wasn't the handsomest kid, and I wasn't the most athletic kid, and I wasn't, and I wasn't, and I wasn't, and somehow that just didn't jive with what she was telling me. So it, I, I was, I had there were there were mixed messages that I got as a kid, and it made me very confused about who I was. Then can I follow up a little bit sure. because it's interesting because most people come from uh, you know their background is. You know, they come from a home life that is very tumultuous, yes. and they they want the adoring parents. Uh, oh yes, that's why I've said it's a, it's an unusual situation. But wow. in 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 ways, it's as destructive as being abused mm -hmm. as a child. Mm. I was just given a lot of false, you know, uh, messages about who I was, mm. and it was. And my mother never believed. I used to get in trouble when when I realized that I wasn't 
good enough. Mm-hmm. I wasn't smart enough. enough. I started seeking negative attention mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. negative attention felt just as good as positive attention. Yes. I got the attention. Mm-hmm. I, I was used to attention. My mother gave me a lot of attention, too much attention. Okay. But when in school, I couldn't get the positive attention because I wasn't smart enough Were or whatever. Were you the only child? No, I had a sister who was mm-hmm. in, large, uh, in large part ignored mm-hmm. because my mother favored me. Mm. Um, I was the first and, and I was the boy, so mm-hmm. she favored me. Mm-hmm. But I, so I started out acting, acting out negativity in school. Mm-hmm. I was the show off, I was a class clown, I was a troublemaker. I got in a lot of trouble. And my mother would deny, you know, I, I, she'd get called into school because mm-hmm. I was being sent home or something. And she would argue with the school. It was their fault. It wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. She would never make me accountable for anything. She just, she had this wow. total false sense of uh, who mm-hmm. I was as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that led to problems for me eventually. Wow. Did any of that help with any of your confidence at all? Like, did you see, was it, or did No, it, it, really? the opposite, mm-hmm. in the opposite. Because I knew that I wasn't, after a while, yeah. I knew I wasn't what she told me. Yeah. So I just thought there was something really wrong with me. Why wasn't I the person that my mother was telling me I was? What was wrong? Mm-hmm. It was a very, uh, it, it, uh, it was a big, big empty feeling inside of me that something was wrong with me and that nobody understood that. And what age did that feel? Started very start? young. Grammar school. Grammar school. <laughs> and the thing is, you probably couldn't recognize it. And when you're a kid, you don't know. No, I didn't know. Didn't you know. don't know. But I, as I said, I started acting out inappropriately, mm-hmm. and I, that acting out carried forward for a long time. Yeah, I never did well in school. I was always a troublemaker in school. Mm-hmm. I never studied in school. I just thought, you know, I was stupid. Yeah, wow. My mom says I'm really smart, and I know I'm not smart, so I must be stupid. Mm-hmm. So after, <laughs> wow, so after <laughs> high school, you've said that you experienced your first big disappointment because, like you said, you realized you weren't college material. Yes. That was a big disappointment. Jewish boys are supposed to be college material. Mm. And uh, I barely got out of high school and and had no preparation for college. Mm. And there was nothing that I could do except uh, join the Army. I just had to go somewhere. And the Army was... uh, Were you stationed out here? Yeah, I was stationed in uh, Monterey, Fort Ord. Mm -hmm. And so... you How long were you in the Army? Six months. Army Reserve. You said it was a great mistake. Yes. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, it was I was a pampered child, and now I go into the army where they do not pamper you, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden that was being, you know, it was a, <clears throat> it was a harsh environment. Reality, yeah. Yes. And did, when did you start drinking? Did you start drinking during that well, time? Well, in high school. In high school, high yeah. School, yeah. And you said that you really did. You drink while you were in the army? Oh, sure. Yeah. Really? Oh, okay. How do you find time to drink? No, they they actually they had something (laughs) called three point two beer, that was invented for the services. It's a lower the lower level of alcohol, and it was just for soldiers in the the army. I don't know if it's still like that, but it was hard to get drunk because the alcohol level was lower. Excuse my language, but a shitload of beer to 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 get drunk. Wow. (laughs) So that debt probably fed. Probably was the beginning of. Well, I just liked the escaping. It was like yeah. it was getting mm. high was, you know, I loved it. I just loved that getting outside of my body. Mm. A lot of people feel that way. Yeah. You know, they just they just find different ways to do it. Sure. Everybody has their own way. 
So here's the second. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm giving you my. Oh, yes, I am. I'm giving you the right thing. I'm sorry. Boy, we're my jumping bad. ahead here. I know. So here's another. <laughs> so, yes, right. Oh Put the glasses God. on. That's right. Um, so there's a topless little roller derby girl. And then there's you walking down a private jet with Mr. Mick Jagger. And I guess the question is how did you meet Bob Gibson? Wait, Bob Gibson. Well, that, he was my partner in the PR business. Gibson and Stromberg represented the Rolling Stones in the early 1970s. On a segment for the David Letterman Show's Top 10 list, Mick Jagger, the legendary lead man for the Rolling Stones for over 50 years, said, You start playing rock and roll to have sex and do drugs. Then you start doing drugs so you can have sex and play rock and roll. Well, I have to backtrack just a little okay, bit. So when I got out of the Army, I yes. was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. I came onto the Sunset Strip. This was 1960. Yeah. And this mm -hmm. is when I started hanging out with would-be musicians. And I was in love with music. I, I just became in love with music. So mm -hmm. we'd go to, we'd go to clubs at night. I'd sleep during the day. I didn't have a job. Uh, and I would just live in this, this kind of fantasy life. Of, mm -hmm. um, and I found my tribe. Those kids were my tribe. They were my mm -hmm. people. These were not kids who were going anywhere special. They were going to college. They had no real ambition. They just loved to hang out, party, get yeah, high, fine. and listen to music. Mm -hmm. So I fit in nicely with that group. Mm -hmm. um, I, I eventually got introduced to somebody who had a PR company, and he, he offered me an internship, a job to teach me PR. Okay. And I started working for this guy, and I met Bob Gibson, who was also working at this PR company. Um, they had a, uh, this was a, a, a show business PR company, and they, they their clients were all movie stars and directors. Mm. They had one music client. What was their name? Ray Charles. It was called Hanson and Schwamm. They're not around a, anymore. I think they might still be. Mm -hmm. But it was a big time PR firm. And they had one music client, Ray Charles. Mm, wow. And the guy that owned the company who was teaching me the business asked me if I wanted to represent Ray because he didn't know anything about music and he didn't <laughs> care. So I'm just like 19 years old, 20 years old, and I'm being given Ray Charles oh to my represent. Wow, that is It was like an absolute, incredible. again, right that's place at gift. the right time. Yeah. See, yeah, a gift. And you were ready, though. You uh, were well, ready. Well, I wasn't ready. I got ready because I faked it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I, I was good at faking it. What do you say? That fake was, it till you make it. Yeah, I was really good at faking it. So I got into the, right. into representing Ray, went on the road with him where I met my would-be wife, who was a dancer in Ray Charles' show. Wow. And um, What do they call him? The Raylettes, but that Raylettes were the singers, right? Okay, these my, were the dancers. They no, had she only had one dancer. This woman that I ended up marrying, a girl at the time, named Chelsea Brown. She's beautiful. Mm. And uh, um, so we got married uh, when I got off the road with Ray, Bob Gibson, and I decided to start our own PR company. We recognized there was nobody representing music acts exclusively. Mm. Rock and roll was just beginning mm -hmm. in the early days. So we started this little company. And as, as I told you before, our first clients were The Doors and Three Dog Night right. and Steppenwolf. So wow. And Did they was, just walk in and say, okay, yeah, well, I, I'm they not knew sure you. Exactly. They, they already yeah, knew you because you were in the same yes. circles. They were trying to make it. We were trying to make it. So we said, let's, you know, let's see what we can do together. I had no idea how to do PR, by the way. Right. I mean, I had been a, an intern in this not place, but not for very long. Yeah, and we said, well, well, let's, we'll give it a big, you know, our shot. We'll help. Right. We'll try to help you guys. And we, we figured it out as we went along so and we got successful with it. And right. other groups started falling into our, you know, into our view. And we mm -hmm. started signing groups. And before very long, we became a very big PR company. We had 
office in New York. We had an office in London. Wow. We were doing a wow. lot of work and representing. There was the influx of all the English mm -hmm. uh, rock and roll uh, artists who came to the U.S. Yeah. So they came just... through you, your doors. But, 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 you know, I want to say, like, during the early days of when Three Dog Night, The Doors, come in, you know, Ray, Mr. Ray Charles, like, what was, a, what was a typical day like? And Gibson and Stromberg. So, was, so what time did you? Stromberg sleep? would sleep till about two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and I read somewhere. I heard you say you didn't even have desks. No, we didn't. We it was an office. Yeah, couches. I, I mean, had not had office. It was like it was like a living room. Oh, um, really? And you purposely set it up that way. Yes, it was. Okay. It was going to be unlike a, no desks. It, the mainly we had what, what are called today account executives. Mm -hmm. I mean, that didn't yes. fit. <laughs> they were loosely accounting executives, right. but I hired a lot of young girls who wanted right. to work as in in music business. Mm -hmm. These were sexy young girls, and all mm -hmm. of my rock clients were very attracted to yes. them. Um, so, and they they learned the business as as they went yeah, along. They also, wow, and, wow. And, Drugs pervaded our business. I mean, mm -hmm. The rock and roll was filled with drugs, and yeah. we—I was a drug addict. I mean, it was simple as that. Right. And one of the attractions of my office, in fact, something that I've known for, and I've never been able to get out from under, but mm -hmm. we had a, a large crystal bowl on on a coffee table in my office mm -hmm. that was filled with cocaine. And if you came to visit and came to do business, you could help yourself to it. So Just I was can't take it. You can't, you can't take, take it, it with you. You could do as much <laughs> right. as you wanted while you were here, right? But you couldn't take it with you. And as a right. consequence, a lot of people wanted to hang out in my and office. And always stay in there. Yes, they on so, the couches. Now, when you said that, to, did you ever have to tell someone like a Jim Morrison, you can't take that, Jim? Oh yeah, no. So people would want to take stuff with them, and we, that was you, the rule. You'd be like, no, you got to uh -uh. keep it there. That's funny. Wow. Well, such a different, that's such a different time. It, like, I know it's, it's just, so, it's like, it sounds like a lot of fun too. It's <laughs> crazy. But you know, you didn't just, you know, we, we talked about this earlier in your bio. You didn't just, you know, do music. It got to a point where you did a film. Well, that's how you're getting ahead of the story again. Oh, good, good, Because there's good. more story here to give it. Tell me, tell me. Because <laughs> I told you before that, that the Peter principle, that that I am the uh, I got poster that. boy Wait, of the Peter, Peter Principle. Peter yep. Principle is simply that you succeed to your level of incompetence. Mm -hmm. So I had no training in business. Uh, uh, I, I was real good at what I did because I could I could talk. Mm -hmm. I was a talker and I was a hustler. So we built this business and Bob was the same kind of guy, my partner. Mm -hmm. So we were able to attract a lot of artists. We built a big company, a big business. We were high profile guys gallivanting all over the world, mm -hmm. but we weren't paying any attention to the business side of it. Mm -hmm. So we'd spend way more money than we should. And, you know, we just, the business <laughs> blew up. But the record companies didn't give you guys well, money sure. to they do, pay. you know, yeah, to do they pay a, lot us a lot of fees. I mean, we made big money, but we spent big money. Yeah. yeah. I had no awareness of, you know, how to, how to portion out money out mm -hmm. of, I didn't even know how to pay bills. We were hiring business managers to take care of our money. You know? Right. And nobody said no to us. Mm -hmm. So I ended up buying a big house. I bought big cars, things that I couldn't mm -hmm. afford really. So eventually it caught up with us and, and drug addiction caught up with me. Mm -hmm. um, Bob was a, <laughs> a drunk. I was a drug addict. So mm -hmm. we're it's Gibson and Stromberg, G and S. So we were known as Guzzle and Snort. <laughs> that was our names. <laughs> so eventually that company blew up 
after a long run. We had a good run. We when did it blow up? What, 1975. That was a good run. Yeah, and you nice started run. in like mid mid 1960s. Yeah, late 60s. Late 60s. So we probably had a six six seven years. Mm-hmm. Did it blow up with your friendship or no? No, uh-uh. no. We just were we were out of control. Mm-hmm. Spending money, not not paying attention to business. Yeah. So eventually, we just. So you walked in one day and you're like, "We got to end the business." Was it just like something where it just crashed? We were out of money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were living. We had a lot of bills. We had a big office. We had expenses all over the place. We had a lot of people that worked for us, and the money just stopped. Mm-hmm. So we had to close it. We had to fold up the company. Wow. Did it? Did that happen over months' times, or did it happen mm-hmm. like it just like a day where you just no, it wasn't in a day. Room? It was. Uh, I yeah. saw the writing on the wall. You did. I lived in denial. We were you know, part of what happened in those years for us and a lot of other people was you thought that money was coming in and it would never stop. Right. We were living this fantasy life, and I never imagined that it would stop, but it did. It stopped. You know, there were other companies that came in competition to with us. That were, right. the, the economy got you know funky, yeah. so that money wasn't rolling in. Right. Money was real easy in the early days of rock and roll. It was just rolling in. These groups were making a fortune. And, and it was real easy to make income, but then things started to tighten up, so money wasn't so easy. Were you still using a lot at that time? Yeah, that's the, that follows me throughout the until I stopped, yeah. which was later in my story. But that's that's a big part of and why. That, were you and you were clearly spending a lot of spending on that too. Yeah. So yeah. That was, yeah. And being that you were guzzle and snort. When you saw people, <laughs> that by the way was why one of the reasons we were successful because half of our clients were yeah. drinkers, right. and Bob would take them out and party with them, the drinkers, right. and I would handle the drug addicts of our clients. Yes, they liked me because I was the, the drug addict. Well, so. by 1975, a few of your peers had <clears throat> had died. Yes, like tragic deaths oh, yeah. of yeah, drug yeah. overdose. Like when you saw that, say when you saw the Jimmy you or never, Janice, like what do you, yeah. what do you think when when that happened? Yeah, I'm too bad that it's not going to be me. Wow. And if it's me, wow. I don't care really. I was just intent on living fast and hard. I didn't, mm-hmm. didn't, even, didn't even register. In the prologue of my first book, uh, there's a little bit uh, that the roadside was littered with people who didn't make it, and mm-hmm. Jimmy and Janice, and yeah. you know, all of those people, and paid no attention you to too. it. It was, it, for a moment, it was sad, and right. you would think about it, but I didn't have time to contemplate this. Too much. Did you ever go to any of the funerals? Were you oh, there? Yeah, you, yeah. You sure. Wow. And went to a lot of funerals. Yeah, I mean, even back then, a lot of people died, and it just it never. An insane number of people died yeah. in their twenties. Yes. There were people who died way too early. Yeah. Way too early. But it just didn't affect me. I didn't think that well. If that's what's going to happen to me, that's what's going to happen to me. But I'm going to live hard and have wow. you know a great life. You're going to live forever. Then. You know? Did you no, think I didn't that think that. No. I didn't, but it was okay. Wow. So you saw I was living a great, Yeah, I was living a life beyond mm-hmm. my dreams. Wow. Wow. Tour with the Rolling Stones. You know how fun that was? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> explain that picture. Were you getting off uh, the jet with with Mick Jagger? Well, when, when, when our company was really, really happening, we got a call one day uh, from a friend of Mick Jagger. She said, Jagger would like to meet you. And so I went up to his house he was staying in, and I was very excited to meet him. But I'd already, already had a lot of really high-profile clients. Mm-hmm. We met, and we talked. He said, I'm going to do this tour, and I hear you're really good at PR. Would you be interested in representing? I said, are you kidding? Of course I'll represent mm-hmm. you. So he hired me, and, and I got to tour the world with the Rolling Stones, wow. which was 
chaotic and just more fun than I've ever had. I know. So when you're touring as a PR man with a group, say the Rolling Stones, what do you do? I had, you could, if you wanted to get access to the Rolling Stones, you had to go through the door. So I had the keys to the kingdom. No, not not the manager. manager. No, this was for for media and anything to do with the media Mm -hmm. to go through me and and personal relations as well. I mean, groupies, you know, yeah. if they wanted to meet Big Jagger, yeah. I had the key. So well, I'm I sure could, you did have a key. Mm-hmm. I did. <laughs> I'm sure you gave and me a key, used too. Key, I'm sure yeah. you used that key, too. Anyway, <laughs> um, I have a wicked sense of humor. Yes. So I can, there was a know. T-shirt that was popular in those days. Mm-hmm. It said, no head, no backstage pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they still have that T-shirt. Yes, days. my son wears it, actually. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. So... When you finally, in 1975, you guys were like, you know what, Bob, okay, this this is crash and burn. Did you think, you know what, I need to get some help? No. No. I never thought for a second, until I actually crashed and burned, I never thought for a second. Was still long. still running oh, fast wow. and furious. Yeah. And by the way, at this roller derby party, I saw like Wolfman Jack there and Phil Spector yeah. was there. I love Wolfman Jack. Yeah, me too. Um, Want to hear a cute story, Wolfman? Yeah. Wolfman had, uh, he broadcast out of a station in Tijuana. Yes, XERB, I think was the name of the station. And it covered all the way up the West Coast, all the way to Washington. Mm -hmm. It was like 100,000 watts, which was unheard of in those days. But there Mm -hmm. were no regulations. If you were in Tijuana, if your transmitter was in Tijuana, you weren't under the FCC controls here. FCC controls all of the stations here, including the power how much power they can have. Mm. So uh, Wolfman was one of the primary characters from this XERB station, and he could sell anything. They were had no rules. He would, and what I remember was, he used to sell live chickens on the, anything he could find that, that he could voice, sell. You can, he, with that voice that Wolfman Jack had. There's no Wolfman. It was, mm-hmm. yes, I love Wolfman Jack. Yeah, um, Wolfman was a character, he was great. He was, he was great. Um, but now, you did a film, and and probably starts around this time in 1975 because the film was released in 1976, October 22nd. Yes, it's you, Gary. It's you. Know your you. Stuff. I well, when you're talking about Richard Pryor, who is probably your favorite. my favorite. I mean, my own boss bought me a book on Richard Pryor. He knew how much I loved him, and the Pointer Sisters. See, my grandmother. We all listened to the Pointer Sisters. Then you. The I Pointer mean, Sisters were PR clients of ours. Yeah, wow. So let's start. We're going to start. This This next photograph is, it starts probably around that time because it's car wash. Gary Stromberg and his childhood friend Art Linson produced the cult classic Car Wash. Released on October 22, 1976, this day-in-the-life comedy focuses on a close-knit, multiracial group of friends working at Sully Boyer's Car Wash in Los Angeles, California. While cracking politically incorrect jokes and grooving to a constant soundtrack of disco funk, the friends meet dozens of outrageous customers, including a smooth-talking, money-hungry evangelist played by Richard Pryor and a zany cab driver played by George Carlin. Motown producer extraordinaire Norman Whitfield produced the soundtrack, which would become a masterpiece that spawned multiple hits such as I'm Going Down, Car Wash, and I Wanna Get Next To You. The soundtrack won a Grammy Award in 1977 for Best Score Soundtrack Album. 
and this is a photograph of um and by the way i know who reverend ike is and we'll get to him in a bit good. because he grew up in south carolina with me yes in regards to this film so so we need to segue from the music to the film the, okay go so for, give it give it Gibson to me and what Stromberg happened in PR firm goes out of business okay and i had were this, you upset well yeah i guess sure i mean i don't remember much about You're it like but, it. Yeah. A characteristic of mine was that when stuff happens, you just turn and go in another direction. Kept it moving. Yeah, kept it moving. That's so, also probably what kept you successful. Yeah, I think that, so. That's the thing that's successful. That is. Like if you can just, you know, get up, dust yourself off, carry on. Successful. Yes. That is a, that's what that's I a trait of That is a care. She's right. That is a characteristic that we're seeing. So I had an idea for a movie that that the I knew nothing about making movies, but I was a big fan and I knew that music paid it played a big part in making mm -hmm. movies in that era. So I had this idea for a movie called Carlish. It was done in a drunken night at the Rainbow Bar and Grill, a restaurant that I owned <laughs> in the in the seventies. And one night just with a you bunch of guys. Rainbow? Yeah, I was the first one. You did there. really? Well, you I was just at the rainbow last week. Thing, huh? so... Wow. Now you missed that one. I get oh, it. I'm down to the rainbow. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, it was a group. We had a group of guys, but Bob Gibson and I were the ones who found and came up with the idea for the rainbow. Then we got a couple of investors oh, and we owned it for a while. Well, you didn't crash and burn that bad if you no, had a, a no. restaurant called the rainbow. Well, we weren't making a lot of money. It was a lot of fun, but mm -hmm. we weren't making a lot of money. We had five partners, I think. And, mm -hmm. um, but we used the restaurant a lot to party and have a good time. Yeah. So during that time, we came up with this idea for Car Wash. I had a friend who had already been a film producer. He'd made one movie. I told him this idea. He said, this is a great idea. And we, and we got a meeting for he and I. It's not Art Linson. Art Linson. Yeah. Art Linson. Oh, yes. 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 So he's, he's a boyhood a friend. He and I grew up together. Wow. Yeah. He's produced for anybody lots out there who does it. Lots of movies like The Untouchables. Yeah. He's... Yeah, wow. Yes, he did. Yeah, very much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so... Um... <laughs> so we went to Universal, set up a meeting for us. And I had this idea, this a day in the life of a car wash. That's all I had mm -hmm. as an idea. But I had something that was turned out to be really smart. Um, was that rather than talk about who was going to be in the movie or who was going to direct the movie, I had the idea of who would make the soundtrack for the movie. Mm -hmm. And that was a man named Roman Whitfield, who was the, in my mind, Genius. the greatest producer of Motown ever. Genius. He produced all of the Temptations. He did a lot of Gladys Knight. Yes. He, he did, uh, went through all of the, yes, he was a, there's actually a documentary being made about his life right now. I can't wait to see it. So when we went to Universal, because yes. Norman was a friend of mine uh, because of the music stuff. We had, I had represented some of the groups that he produced. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I just thought he was the most amazing guy. I'd go to the studio and watch him work. What was he like? Uh, he was totally crazy. He was like... Uh, when you say crazy, what does that yeah. look like? Norman would speak a language that hardly anyone could understand. Oh, really? Yeah, he was out there. Genius? Yes. Was he? He was a, he was a genius musically, but he, 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 he was he mentally ill. Probably some degree. Yeah. He loved the race. We loved the. We shared the love of the racetrack together. We'd go to the racetrack, and nice. Norman had these just wild ideas on how to make his name like you know a jillion dollars betting on horses. It never happened. <laughs> but he was just a fun guy to be with. Him. Yeah. He was great talent. Was he nice? Not particularly. No, yeah. he wasn't great. He was uh, difficult. Yeah, he was a difficult guy. But mm -hmm. like you, like you said, I mean, a lot of artists are difficult. Very people. much so. But but Norman was <laughs> brilliant, and Norman <laughs> wanted to be in the movies. He really wanted to get in the movie business. Oh wow! 
So when I told them the idea for college, she said, no. So I went into Universal when we had the initial meeting and I pitched the idea. I explained to them that Norman Whitfield had made many albums at Motown. He had never made an album that sold less than a million copies. Wow. His worst album sold over a million copies. He said, if you give me the money to make this movie, it's not going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be made in a car wash. The whole movie is made in a car wash. Mm -hmm. It can't cost a lot. If Norman does the soundtrack, the soundtrack will pay for the movie. Mm -hmm. So they, they understood that idea. They weren't interested particularly in making an African-American movie. Um, yes. But I'm they were interested in making money. Mm -hmm. And they saw the, 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 the benefit of having a soundtrack like this. So did, did you know that you were going to keep it predominantly African-American? Oh, sure. You, are, you were sure. in there with R&B was always been, you, you know, I had this big PR business with lots of music talent. Mm -hmm. and I represent all these English acts and stuff, but R&B and jazz were my music. So, yeah, that's mm -hmm. all I really so listened to So you walked in there, did you tell them that you're going to be hiring mainly African-American uh, actors? No, no, that, that, well, I mean, that's what I envisioned, but yeah. no, that wasn't the issue. The issue was to get Norman to do get the soundtrack, do and that, that it would okay. be, it would be a R&B album. Mm -hmm. So, and then it ended up being, you know, it ended up pretty well. It, you want to hear it, your uh, Rev and Ike story? Well, mm -hmm. i got to ask you a quick question about sure. that. Then we'll get to Rev and Ike. I, I remember Rev and Ike being from South Carolina. Right. But in regards to the, the, this is one thing that I found out in reading up on Car Wash is that Michael Schultz, it might have been you, Michael Schultz and Art Linson, who said who he, you did had Norman do the soundtrack first. And then when you started filming during yes. principal photography, they would listen to the music. Really? So that that so my knowledge, that's the first movie that ever did that. We oh, recorded the entire that. the entire soundtrack was done before we started filming the movie. And if you watch the movie, you can hear like you. Well, but you can you can watch the people on the street in the background. Mm -hmm. They're hearing the soundtrack being played while the filming is going on. So those people are walking in rhythm to them. It's subtle, but yeah. everybody's in rhythm to the music. So yeah, all I mean, of the music was done prior to that. And, and the cast, when they're performing, they all hear this Yes. Stuff. Like, I want to get next to you when the actor was singing that, that. He was actually yeah. hearing that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, people, uh, our listeners out there, I mean, Car Wash is a legendary song. The soundtrack won the 1977 Grammy um, for Best Score Soundtrack Album. So it's a legendary album because a lot of people, uh, People even today listens to that. I mean, there's, the songs are still out there in the, in well, the pop a, culture. Well, there's a song, Car Wash, begins Car Wash. with a clap track. Where yes. Yes. Yeah. That that clap track is played at every sporting event in the country. Oh, that's it right. is. It is. That's Actually, right. That's so right, because my first job and first singing mm -hmm. job ever, of course, because I'm Canadian, <laughs> was at a hockey arena. And like that, that, that is true. And like all Queen songs. So I take my kids yeah. to games, various <laughs> games, and they, they go, they yeah, and my oh, kids I look remember. over at me and they go, "Damn, yeah, that's you! Yeah, that's you! Yeah!" I, I never mean, put that together. That is that's brilliant. Really that's really so true. Yeah. Even I'm going down. I mean, that's been covered so many times. I want to get next to you, and it had the point sisters. So you want to hear the Reverend Ike story? Yes, yes, please. So we make. So now we have a deal to make this movie. Uh, I'm like sailing again now. I'm mm -hmm. on top of my game. We're making a movie. I'm a producer. Yes. Um, and there was a character in the movie that Richard Pryor played. Yes. Called Daddy Rich. Daddy Rich. That was fashioned after Reverend, Reverend Ike. Ike. But originally we were going to get Reverend Ike to play the part. Mm -hmm. So we had hired Reverend Ike. <laughs> um, 
I can tell you a little bit about Reverend Ike. You know about him. Yeah, you they probably don't. Reverend Ike was the, the one of the first of the television evangelists who was a total scam artist. He was just about making money. Reverend, here's some of the things that Reverend Ike said. And he, he started said, out in South Carolina. Yeah, he was great. Hey. <laughs> he was a great scam artist. He's in my, my home state. <laughs> Reverend Ike said things like, you need to get out of the ghetto and yes. into the get mo." Yes, he had to use it. What was the next one? It and, was. And he said, that, uh, "Use it." Oh wait a minute. He I'm said, "The up. best way to help the poor is not be one of them." Yes, and he <laughs> said, "You can't lose with the stuff I use." Yeah, Reverend Ike had a. He had a whole. And he, one of his things was, he had this a Reverend Ike prayer cloth, which was a piece of cloth like this big mm -hmm. that he supposedly had touched and blessed. And if you sent in twenty five dollars or whatever the donation mm -hmm. was to him, you it received in the mail this prayer cloth that Reverend Ike had blessed. Mm. And what you were supposed to do with it is you were supposed to put it wherever you needed something. So if you needed money, you would mm. put that prayer cloth in your wallet. Mm -hmm. If you needed food, put the prayer cloth in your refrigerator. <laughs> if you needed sex, put it in your underpants. <laughs> but wherever you need it, take that Reverend Ike prayer cloth. And I, he like sold millions of these things. These oh, people were, he became a mega church. Yeah. I think up in New mega York, church. he went to New York too. He I was think. a great hustler and a great salesman. Yeah. So we hired Reverend Ike to play himself in this movie. <laughs> and a few days before we were to, to shoot this thing, we get a call. Listen, I changed my mind. God talked to me and he doesn't want me to do it. That's what he said. God talked to me, he doesn't want me to do it. So what we theorized, and I think it was right, it was he was afraid that we were going to expose him and make him look bad. Because mm -hmm. he was really out there and, and it would yeah. be easy to make him look bad. But now we were stuck. We were starting to film the, the movie and Reverend I pulls out. So the casting director for our movie said, what about Richard Pryor? And I'm like, whoa, what a great That's idea that brilliant. was. So. And Richard loved the idea of playing Reverend Ike. And so he that's loved how, playing it too because. Yes. And he played him, he was better than Dad. Than, than Reverend Ike. Right. I know the way he played it, and even having, now were the mm. Pointer Sisters cast at that point too before yeah. Richard? Yes. They were going to yeah. be surrounding Re Reverend, Reverend Ike. Ike. Yes. Oh, to do a musical brilliant. number. Well, I love You Gotta Believe. I love You Gotta no, Believe. You told all these songs in that. Yeah, well, I told, I'm, I'm black. I mean, wait, that's what you we are? listen to. <laughs> we listen to Carl Walsh, the whole soundtrack, all the time, but. I know you represented the Pointer Sisters. The sad thing is that substance abuse touched their lives too, because mm. I loved June. Judy Porter. Yeah. Pointer, you know, she passed, she passed away, away a few days, very young, very young, a few yeah. years ago, um, and yeah. she it really dogged her, and it dogged Richard. Mm. Um, but he, I think he, you know, he was sick before he died with multiple sclerosis. And he was sober. Richard Pryor got sober. Yes, he, he did. Died. Yes, he did. Way before he died, yes. I think. You know, when he got the MS. So here's another, another. I don't know how to explain you. this. <laughs> so that guy in that photo, that guy in that photo, that would be you, your roller derby guy. You're having a good time. Well, that was from the PR days. So yes. PR, one of the things that we did with PR was an act, uh, an act had an album. You would have an album release party. I guess they still do that mm -hmm. today. Yeah. But the, the idea was to create whatever kind of event that would get the most attention. Right. So we would think really outside the box to come. And money was very free in those mm -hmm. days. This wasn't a big party. I mean, this was fun and stuff. You and it got some attention. Was at that it point. was a, a, looked, a, a roller. Crazy. Yeah, there was, was a big roller rink on the corner of La Cienega and, and uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. Mm -hmm. That was a roller skating rink. So we had a roller skating party to launch a group. I think it was called Black Oak, Arkansas. Yes, you have good and, memory. And they, uh, no, I don't, but that's, I remember <laughs> that. So we had a roller derby party. We had a lot of really wild parties. We had a, 
a costume party once for I can't remember what group this was, but we we. Oh, we, see, I want to hear the story because you're grinning a lot, so I know it's going to be something good. We, we, our offices were in the Playboy building at this time. We took over Hugh Hefner's uh, uh, penthouse suite in the Playboy business on Sunset when he moved to his the Playboy Mansion. Mm -hmm. So for a year, he had, was in this building in, on Sunset, and we took over his offices, and we had a party for some act. It was a costume party, and you had to dress up, and it was just very weird. I think I dressed up as the Pope. <laughs> and I, I walked love it. I mean, but anyway, we, we had we, we hired a bunch of a, a farmer with sheep, and we hid the sheep out in the in the like oh, in a back room. And when everybody was in the party, we had them release the sheep into this room, this big room. So there was all these people dressed up in all kinds of costumes, and all of a sudden, here are hundred sheep going. And the sheep didn't crap in the back. They, they did everything. Yes. <laughs> that, wow. And the funny thing oh, is that that's so that is crazy. So, I mean, that was the kind of silliness that, that rock and roll was very silly in those days. It was debauchery. Debauchery. It was. I know it does. Yeah, it it sounds. I know. We had a party at the Plaza Hotel in New York uh, for Casablanca Records, I think. And mm -hmm. we, made, we recreated the movie Casablanca. Mm -hmm. Uh, so everybody came in costumes from that era. Ooh. Did you uh, dress like? Uh, what did you dress like? I had a dashiki. You know, I wore a dashiki. <laughs> with one of those. I forgot what they're called. <laughs> and that is actually the visual that. Is yeah, so we funny. had we had a lot of fun. You could get away with. Oh, here's the best party. The best party ever was Alice Cooper's. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know what a debutante ball is. Mm -hmm. yes. So when Alice style. Cooper, when <laughs> Alice Cooper was first making it. This is a great story. When Alice Cooper first made it, the idea was to rent, which was the Ambassador Hotel downtown mm -hmm. is no longer there, but the Coconut Grove was the main major nightclub in Los Angeles, a mm -hmm. big nightclub. Was it like the Copacabana? Yes, same kind of thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. The Coconut Grove. We rented that, that facility, uh, informing them that it was the debutante ball, the coming out party for Miss Alice Cooper. They didn't know it was a guy, a guy in a rock band. So they they had all of the trappings for a debutante ball, which is very formal, all white, roses, flowers, and stuff. And into the coconut grove come the, this a total freak show. There was a group called uh, uh, Sylvester and the Cockettes. Sylvester was a drag queen from oh, San yes, Francisco. Oh yes, I know. You make me feel mighty real. Yes, she knows her stuff. Seriously, she's like so an Sylvester and the Cockettes song. were the cigarette girls. You know, how remember the yes, girls who dress yes. up with the cigarettes and they'd walk around. They would say, oh, cigars, that. cigarettes, Vaseline. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so during that heyday of where you know you said much later, you know, when you're in recovery, you said that. Alcohol was your greatest friend until it wasn't. Oh. And looking at that guy, you know, even thinking back to what the stories you said, you know, what does that friendship with alcohol look like? Well, okay, so we want to talk about because yeah, I'm telling you all the good stuff that it, I've been in recovery for a long time now, and and the way we look at recovery, most of the people that are in recovery mm -hmm. is that it all starts out as fun, and then it becomes fun with problems, right? And then it becomes all problems, mm -hmm. and that was what the 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 story was for me. 
Keith Moon, the mega-talented drummer for the rock band The Who, struggled with alcoholism throughout his life. One of the reasons he acquired the nickname Moon the Loon was because he enjoyed smashing his drum kits on stage. Offstage, he blew up toilets with either cherry bombs or dynamite. During his tours with the band, his destruction of so many hotel rooms caused the band to be banned from several hotels. Instead, they had to stay in neighbouring towns away from the concert venues. The most infamous incident happened at a Holiday Inn when he drove his Bentley into a swimming pool. Oftentimes, he would pass out on stage and end up in the hospital. Eventually, alcoholism took a toll on Keith's health and he died at the age of 32 of an overdose on a prescription drug designed to treat symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. Started out a lot of fun. All the stories I'm telling you now are about that, fun. That was, that's when it was your friend. Yeah, it was my mm -hmm. friend. Alcohol and drugs. I, right. I won't distinguish one from the other. They were right. both. So it started off as lots of fun, and I have great stories about how silly and fun my life was. Mm -hmm. But then it starts to turn on me. It starts to become, you know, there become problems. Um, um, I mean, and then eventually it becomes just right. problems. So now, that's mm -hmm. the transition that mm -hmm. I went through. Mm -hmm. Now, in... in that photograph, I know I talked, you showed me the photograph, but personal one that was in your wallet. Yeah. In that photograph, were the lights... What lights you said, are on, nobody home. Yeah, is that, was that an example of the photograph well, looking like that? Or was it just This still wasn't fun? quite at the end yet. It this was still, still at the end. Yeah. So that photograph you showed me was, it was still fun and games. Fun and games. This, not and the this one thing. in my wallet. That's, yes. that's, no, that's towards the end. And so that is a, uh, I guess you got a gold record. You obviously were the PR firm for whatever group that was. Yeah. For the point of sisters. Well, now we're going back in time. We're going, we're jumping around here. I know. Let's back. just jump for a bit only because I want to <laughs> tell you, I want to okay. ask you a question about when you were in the midst of having all the fun. Um, you know, Stephen King, um, who had substance abuse issues, mm -hmm. said that, um, you know, he said that there's a phrase called the elephant in the living room. And he said, which purports to describe what it's like to live with a drug addict and an alcoholic or an abuser. Mm -hmm. And he said, people outside such relationships will sometimes ask, you know, looking back, like, how could you let such a business go on for so many years, like living with someone like a Gary Stromberg or, you know, a, a Bob Gibson? And it's hard for, for anyone living in a more normal situation, he said, to understand that answer. But what comes closest to that is, I'm sorry, but it was where it was there when I moved in. I didn't know it was an elephant. I thought it was part of the furniture. Furniture, and there comes an aha moment for some folks, the lucky ones, when they suddenly realize the difference. How was, did your family deal with good time, Gary? Um, a good time being a lot of fun. Did they, know? they didn't know a lot. They about didn't know me. you no, had an issue. I was able to hide that from them. And my mother, who was always in denial about that I had any problems and stuff, all of a sudden, I now am successful and I'm fulfilling the dreams that she had for me. Mm -hmm. So she loved that I was like a. I had this big time rock, you know, rock right. and roll PR company, and then she really loved that I had the right. movie thing. She did you invite her to the parties and oh, stuff? Yeah, she did. And so she saw you having a good time. Yes. What about Chelsea? Did she know? Chelsea was. We weren't married. You been? Yeah. We, were you with someone else by that point? Yeah. yeah. And did she kind of know? Like, there's Chelsea there's, was off on her own thing. And right. She was living her own life. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because it's it's interesting when you're the person living with that or or you know being with someone that sometimes you can be doing the same thing. Well, you know? this elephant in the room. I, I just comment on that that the the problem with drug addiction and alcoholism is it's called the disease of denial. 
-hmm. So you you you're not the one who knows you're in trouble. Everybody mm -hmm. else knows it, but you don't. Mm -hmm. And it's except easy. your mom. Well, as I said, everybody else yeah. knows except my mom. Yeah, but she probably <laughs> did know. She probably did know. She just didn't want to admit to it or mm -hmm. admit it to herself even. But it's the disease that tells you you don't have a disease. Mm -hmm. The disease of addiction is the disease that tells you you don't have a disease. And that's why so many people stay in that state for so long. Mm -hmm. They fight until the very end until yeah. they can't do it anymore. Right. I don't have a problem. This isn't a problem. I'll figure it out. I'll work through this. Mm -hmm. Or you're to blame, not me. Right. It's, it's the disease of denial. So unfortunately, a lot of people pay a real serious price mm -hmm. for the disease of addiction it's because they don't. They don't listen to other people who try uh, and talk to them. Try to talk mm -hmm. to them, or they want something to help when they do hear. Well, you know, the we did an episode last week on uh, Elliot Smith, and you know he had a serious battle with alcoholism, and he would have blackouts. He ran off a, a cliff and was caught by a tree. Um, you know, um, he suffered from a deep depression. You know. It's obvious at that point that alcohol has become his enemy. And I know we can talk about the intervention part, but was there a particular moment when alcohol became your enemy? Like, did it, did, was there, because I know it all leads up to something, but it leads up to like one, like something happens where you, because you said that you were Mr. Spiritual Sickness of 1982 was that something like an incident like with Elliot he ran off of a cliff or he had black and people were like okay now we need to you know talk to you about something mine was just watching my whole life go down the drain and being unable to do anything about it so there was no one incident no I had a I had a big house in Malibu County I got foreclosed mm -hmm. uh, my girlfriend at the time left me and mm -hmm. the cars got repossessed I started losing everything and I, and I mm -hmm. couldn't work I had, uh, I had uh, screwed up my business. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to work with me. Their friends were just bailing out on me. I was pretty much isolated. They would work on work with you because did you do something? Did you try and start fights? Were you? Uh, I was a bad actor. I was. My behavior was very bad. The second movie that I produced, I got the sense that I'm, you know, indomitable and and nobody can tell me anything. I know everything, and I'm mm -hmm. a big shot, and. Um, um, so I just caused a lot of trouble for me and other people that worked with me. Mm -hmm. I was a troublemaker, and, and it just it all turned and went south. You were acting out. I was acting out. Yeah, acting and then out. it just all you know all went down the drain. So I lost mm -hmm. all of it, mm -hmm. and I was the last one to know that I had a problem. Well, you, it's funny because when you found your way to recovery, and talking about the three dog night. You mentioned in one of yours, and I thought about Elliot um, again when you mentioned that Chuck Negrin mm -hmm. taught you a valuable lesson. You know, after you had went through the recovery, and he taught you. A well, I'll tell you who Chuck Negron is. Please do a little bit, and then I'll tell you about that. Chuck Negron, because because he's one of the people I interviewed in my book, in the book The Heart of the Fall. Mm -hmm. uh, I get asked, what's the most dramatic story in mm -hmm. my book? Or an, the most dramatic story of an artist that I've worked with? Mm -hmm. And it's always Chuck. And uh, Chuck was the one of the three lead singers in Three Dog Night. Mm -hmm. The reason his story was so dramatic was that he went from being an early 20s, maybe 23, 24-year-old, emerging rock star mm -hmm. with more fame, more money, more success than 
anybody could have imagined. They were the number one group in the world, bigger than the Beatles and the Rolling Stones wow. from record sales. Right. They, they just... Uh, well, they also had great songs because Harry one right Nelson, after another. yeah, Harry one Nelson, right and after. all these people writing songs. They would have one number one record after another. Mm -hmm. They continued to fall. So they, if you look at their history, yes, it's all number one records. Right. So they were bigger than anybody. Chuck went being from being the lead singer in this group, one of the three lead singers in this group. As I said, with more money, more fame, more some mm -hmm. everything, mm -hmm. he went from that to ended up living in a refrigerator box on Skid Row in Los Angeles. Yeah, he lived. He lost everything. Yeah. He went through twenty-seven rehabs, yeah. and then ended up just penniless, living in a refrigerator box. Chuck has been sober now for over twenty-five years, so this yeah. isn't a sad story. It has a nice ending, but yeah. but Chuck had shown me. Yeah, he showed me. I saw the place where the the little indenture in the building where the mm -hmm. refrigerator box was that he lived in. So so alcoholism is devastating. Drug addiction is devastating. Mm -hmm. It just uh, destroys lives. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, Chuck pulled out in time out, after 27. And the message, by the way, that you were alluding mm -hmm. to that, that I'll say is that what I've learned in my now almost 35 years of recovery is that you never give up on anybody. Mm -hmm. We all know people who are affected with addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, whatever, and they're impossible characters to live with. I mean, they wreak havoc in the lives of the people that love them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're, they're I mean, I don't have to tell you what they are. They're, they're, you know, they're troublemakers, and their, their lives are chaos. Right. And it's very easy to give up on people like that. I can't tell you how many people gave up on mm -hmm. Chuck Medlock. Mm -hmm. This guy will never get sober. He's going to die. Right. Chuck didn't die, and he did get sober, and he's got. He's a very useful, living a wonderful life today. He's mm -hmm. helped a lot of people in recovery. And mm -hmm. the point of it, and when I do my talks and uh, in connection with my books, I always a woman will come up to me afterwards. Can I talk to you about my daughter? Mm -hmm. My daughter's mm -hmm. addicted to alcohol. What am I going to do? You know, I'm afraid she's going to die. And the, with the message is that don't give up. You know, even though they're, it's heartbreaking to right. see what they're doing. You just mm -hmm. can't give up on it because you never know when somebody's going to be ready right. to get the message. Well, one follow-up question to that. When you say don't give up, like what does that look like to support someone who wreaks havoc That's, in yeah, your well, life? Woody, and, and, and there's such a thing as tough love, which is important too. Yes. But I mean in your own mind. Mm -hmm. Don't say that I can't. Don't say it. I over. can't do this. This it. is over. Don't say that. Yeah. What do you say to kids who have um, parents who struggle with addiction? Well, that's that's abuse. that's very difficult. Like, what would you say to a kid to a now kid? who's listening? Well, the, the 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 biggest problem, as I understand it, with children who have parents who are adult uh, addicts and alcoholics, is the notion that it's they blame themselves. Mm -hmm. It's their fault that their parents are like that. Mm -hmm. If I only was a good boy, Daddy wouldn't drink. Mm -hmm. And I, you say it's not their. It's fault. not your fault. Has nothing, nothing to, do, to with do with you, and that's a hard lesson too, because they don't believe that. Mm -hmm. They believe it is. Mm -hmm. It has something to do with them, and that's heartbreaking to see that. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have a lot of experience in that, yeah. but I do know a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to? Because I mean, I have some friends in my life who have dealt with this with uh, family members. Uh, where's the fine line of enabling, like a family member enabling someone, or or supporting? That's tough. Alex, so you don't want to give up. I mean, you love someone. Mm -hmm. Where, where is that line? There is no definite line. Yeah, so it's every situation mm -hmm. is, and it's this is a terrible disease because mm -hmm. it really does hurt 
lots of innocent people get, yeah, get injured because of this. And that's the that's the, becomes the issue. Mm-hmm. When do I stop enabling? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, or because you want to love, you yeah, want to be there, you and you know each yeah. case is different. But yeah. what I would say in any any of those things is to get professional help, mm-hmm. seek outside professional help, mm-hmm. because there are people who do know, you know, are, are experts in this yeah. field who know about this. So. You can't just generalize and say what anybody can do. But yeah, you can absolutely. Go, you can seek individual help. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, is uh, that brings it to the point about interventions and and um, you know even going back to Elliot again. I mean, his friends and family did an intervention, intervention. on him, yeah. and he agreed to go. But there was, I guess, there was some residual irritation. I think that they he felt like they blindsided him, and he left shortly. Like, why does it take multiple? Like what? What is multiple in the recovery has, program? We talk about you, you, interventions. And, yes, you, you, you can't make anybody want to get sober or be ready. You're ready when you're ready, and mm-hmm. God knows when that is. Mm-hmm. But you know, you can do all the interventions in the world. If that person doesn't want to change his ways, then he won't. Mm-hmm. And if he is ready, there's nothing that can stop him from getting sober and, and changing his life. So it's a hard one. It's a tough one. Yeah, but you said Chuck really kind of got to a point where he just got to just rehabs. Yeah, he just felt like God can help me on this one. I need, I need help. He finally got ready. He just yeah. had enough. Yeah, he had enough. He had got beaten down, mm-hmm. and it just something changed inside of him, and he was ready to. And he sought help, and he went into a, a rehab and stayed there. I think for nine months, wow. and then he got sober. This is so inspiring for I think especially I mean everywhere, but a lot in this town. There's a lot of people that don't consider themselves because you know they're not full-blown they'll be like well i'm not a full-blown alcoholic i'm not a full-blown drug addict mm. but they still could absolutely have an issue and i mean i used to work in the restaurant industry and i think many people had like it was just part mm. of regular life and it was pretty destructive for many well, people and just alcoholism and drug addiction are what we refer to as a progressive disease. Mm-hmm. So if you are in fact alcoholic or a drug addict, it gets worse. It de- never yeah. gets better. Yeah. So catching this early is mm-hmm. the, obviously the best thing. But there are people, we talk about riding the train of addiction. You mm-hmm. can ride it all the way to the station or you can get off along the way. It's just, you know, it's oh, a, what the circumstances right. are. It's good and inspiring, though, for I think people and our listeners mm-hmm. to hear that it's possible, even when you have hit rock bottom, you, you can, it's possible to come out of right. it. Yes. And it's possible yes. to come out even if you haven't, but you're going in a bad direction. But yes. That's well, very never inspiring. too late. Yeah. Never that's, too late. That's yeah. important for people to hear. Yeah. But you know what? I have a follow-up question to that. And what's the difference between a problem and just social drinking? So, again... It's hard. There's no hard and fast it. definition. There are people who can drink, be heavy drinkers, and there. That alcoholism is defined as an obsession of the mind and a, 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 an allergy of the body. Mm-hmm. Those are the two components that make an alcoholic: obsession of the mind mm-hmm. and an allergy of the body. Mm-hmm. When I take a drink, I have an allergic reaction that causes me to want to continue to drink. Mm-hmm. I just got to keep feeding this allergy. It's un, it's a totally unnatural act, but I start at my, I take a drink and then the drink takes a drink and then the drink takes me. Coupled with that is an obsession of the mind. When I'm not drinking, I'm thinking about drinking. Mm-hmm. How am I going to get my next drink? When am I going to go drink again? Same thing applies with drugs. Mm-hmm. So you need those two components mm-hmm. to be in in medical in the medical sense a real alcoholic or a real drug addict. Those two things have to exist. 
practical mm-hmm. business. Some mm-hmm. people are just heavy drinkers and they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And they don't think about their next drink. They, they don't think about do their it. next drink. Yes, they can stop. It's like recreational drug use. Yes. You know? There are people that can do that too. Yeah. I couldn't stop. Yeah. It's, you enjoyed it. <laughs> well, well, it enjoyed It, it enjoyed, enjoyed me. <laughs> so this is another story that I was moved by your book and I saw you talk about uh, this this group is like my I mean I remember them as well. I'm gonna keep saying my childhood, but Sheik was one of my favorite bands of all time. And those guys, Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards, I mean they produced hit after hit. They were the producers of the nineties. I mean Good Times has been extensively sampled in everything. In fact Queen the the hook from the bass line from Good Times um, is like the most copied piece of music uh, in music history. Yeah. I mean, Queen heard it and then created another one, Bites the Dust. Yeah. Um, so I would tell anybody, definitely listen to the bass hook. That would be Mr. Bernard Edwards um, in, in that because it inspired so many artists, even from Duran Duran. I mean, you know, then they, they worked with all these, these great artists, but... Um, and I guess this is a quick question for you. You've been around a lot of creative people, and we'll get to Niles' story in just a second, but having been around so many artists, you know, what's your opinion about the connection of not even Elliot, we'll go back to him. He was very prolific. Out of all those blackouts and alcoholism and this and that, he produced some great stuff. And Niles, he, I don't, I don't know about So you want to know what the connection is between yes. artists and, and drug addiction and alcoholism? Yes, there I'm hardly able to. Wow. Well, there's but nothing to scientifically to work, though, to create. Here's my theory. Function. To be an artist is like working without a net. <laughs> it's a dangerous occupation. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of you courage. Listen, you know that? She's an artist. Oh, it requires life. a lot of courage. And, <laughs> and it's to go out on stage by yourself and, and risk looking foolish or mm. risk making an ass of yourself yeah. or takes a lot of courage. Alcohol and drugs are courage. They are liquid and, and powdered courage. You go, I mean, many artists that I represent would get high right before they went on stage because mm-hmm. it makes you, if you feel impervious, mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen to you. Yeah, I'm going to be sensational. Have a beer. Yeah, or any of that. Mm-hmm. Any of that. Yeah. Any of the substances. Mm-hmm. They're just, if they're liquid courage. It takes a lot of courage to be out it there does. on your own. And, and, and I think that that's why you see more alcoholism and drug addiction in the arts than you would as a, doesn't take a lot of courage to mm-hmm. be a plumber it's also a lot of sensitive people though yeah like and sensitive people so, too we talked about well, that with elliot like, that goes know, into what an artist is yeah. is a sensitive person mm-hmm. right and then as a way of i think drugs and alcohol can sometimes either accentuate or numb something too like when you're mm-hmm. over sensitive you medicate. feel like you're open nerves and mm-hmm. then that's correct having a glass of wine or something like you know just right a yeah human for a <laughs> not speaking from <laughs> you sure about that Michelle? <laughs> um but Niall Niall Rogers um the great Niall Rogers. well I'll just tell you one quickie go about Niall go for it because I didn't know him that well yeah we didn't work together but he lived in the same town I was living in in Connecticut and see I didn't know that till I read you yeah we so we lived in the same town and I knew he was in in recovery as well. And mm-hmm. when I finally reached him and he agreed to do it, we sat down, we had a wonderful talk. But he told me one thing that, that I had never heard before and that I thought was absolutely astounding. Mm-hmm. Niall's parents were both heroin addicts. Mm-hmm. He grew up in Harlem in New York. And he said he would come home and there would be a house full of people mm-hmm. all high on heroin, nodding out. 
But he said they'd be standing up in the corner nodding out or they'd be sitting on a couch nodding out. And he said, as a child, I thought that only children slept laying down. I thought adults slept standing upward. And I thought, oh man, how tragic that is. That is, is tragic. Even I get so, to choked yeah. up now. What a sad thing. This little boy would come home yeah. and all these drug addicts would be standing in the corner nodding out or sitting on a couch. And he thought all the children that sleep laying down. Him. Yeah, that was normalized yeah. for him. And, you know, it's funny because his natural dad died before the age of 40. Yes, um, right. Right. For cirrhosis of the liver before the age of In fact, by his mid-30s, his dad had no liver. Mm -hmm. And I was in the news. That, yeah, his stepdad was the heroin addict. And his stepdad's siblings all died from drug abuse. Yeah. You know, um, and it's crazy what you said that. But he said he suffered from always feeling not good enough. Kind of what you yeah. talked about. All addicts you feel know, that way. It all feels a hole for him. As we talked about a spiritual sickness. That's mm -hmm. what the sickness is. It's mm -hmm. the hole inside of your gut that tells you, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough. Um, and that's the hole that we try to fill with drugs and alcohol to try mm -hmm. to make us whole. It never works. That's <laughs> crazy. That's crazy. It's sad. It's tragically sad. So this guy... Wow, now you're going to get off into a totally different realm. Well, uh, he kind of fills into that, what you were talking about earlier about... The, about the drink starts consuming you because you're always thinking of a drink and I think this guy mm -hmm. perfectly explains that and I remember the quote I don't know if you remember the quote that you talked about that this guy had a quote um, where his name is Michael Deaver and you mm -hmm. can tell who he was and all that fun stuff but Michael Deaver had a quote that said I've been in cabinet meetings mm -hmm. I've been in national security council meetings Meetings with popes, presidents, prime ministers, and kings, but there's nothing more powerful than a room full of alcoholics in recovery. Uh, okay, well, I should back up and explain that first. Yeah. Uh, Michael Deaver, um, young people probably aren't going to know who he is. Uh, Michael Deaver was uh, President Reagan's chief of staff. He was the number two guy in the White House. He started with Reagan when he was the governor of California, and he was with him for like 25 years. Michael Deaver was an alcoholic, and Michael Deaver resigned this powerful, powerful position as number two guy in the White House. He resigned because he was interfering with his drinking. He couldn't drink the way he wanted to drink. Uh, he was always on call to the Reagans. And Reagan would call him in the middle of the night or with problems and stuff. And he just didn't have the time to drink the way he wanted to drink. So he resigned. It just shows you, again, the power of alcohol. And you and said the power progress, of alcohol. It's progressive. So this man decided it's just it was too much. I don't want you know I want to drink and I'm not able to drink and you know be number two guy in the White House a very powerful position. On the cover of Time Magazine here. Yeah, he's on the cover of Time Magazine. Yeah, he's. Wow. So he he resigned and um, he went off and started his own business, which he went right in the toilet with because he was now drinking more than ever. Mm -hmm. He lost everything and he got himself into a recovery program. Here's the, you want a good Michael Deaver story? Oh, I know. I want to hear part it. Of, part of recovery, uh, the recovery program that I'm in, it's a 12-step program. And one of the steps in the program is, is the amends step. It says that we have to make amends to people that we have hurt. Mm -hmm. We have to go to those people and acknowledge that what we did and say that we're sorry and ask if there's any way we can make it up to them. It's a cleansing, mm -hmm. you know. Do you have to tell Activity. him or write it? 
Do you, no, you, you have to it, tell them. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, there's no hard and fast rules, but mm -hmm. the best way to do an amends is in person. Mm -hmm. It can be very embarrassing, it can be very hurtful, but you have to own up, you have to be a man. Mm -hmm. So Michael Deaver left the White House, started drinking the way he wanted to drink, and went into the toilet, lost everything. And he was out in Los Angeles attending a, a recovery 12-step meeting. And they, it was what's called a step meeting, where they, they, they work on the various steps. And this day, they happened to be working on the ninth step. It was reading about the ninth step, the amends step. And when he left the meeting, he said, I realized that I never made amends to the Reagans for the way I behaved. He said, I know I must have hurt them and I did some inappropriate things. He said, and they're living here in Los Angeles. I'm visiting, he lives in Washington. He said, this what better opportunity to make amends. So he got in his car and he hadn't talked to them in a couple of years. And he calls them and he said, to my surprise, Nancy Reagan answered the phone. He said, I thought I'd get a secretary or somebody and I'd make an appointment. And he said, Nancy, I, I, I wanna come and talk to you and Ronnie. I have something I need to talk with you about. And they said, well, come on over now. And he was like, totally unprepared for that. Because totally they normally have somebody answering the yeah, phone. The president, the president of the United States answers the phone, oh, wow. or the first lady, and says, yeah. come on over. So he said he was really nervous, and he drove over there, and he knocked on the door, and they both answered the door, and they both, like, you know, they were so excited to see him. He said, listen, I have something I need to tell you. And they go into the den, he sits down, he said, listen, you know I'm an alcoholic. And I'm here to make amends and apologize for anything that I did that might have hurt you or anything that I said that might have hurt you. And if there's any way I can make it up to you, please let me know. They looked at each other and then they looked at him and said, Michael, we've always loved you. We're so happy to learn that you are in recovery now and that you're doing well. You don't owe us anything. So he said, and, and then he said, he said, well, that's what I came here for. He said, I don't want to talk about anything else, but that's what I needed to do. And he got up to start to leave, and Reagan got up and started walking out with him. And he said, as we were walking out of the house, he said, it just flashed on me. This was Ronald Reagan's birthday that day. And he said, every birthday that he'd ever known, he'd called him to wish him happy birthday. And, and just coincidentally, this was his birthday. And he stopped in the middle of the floor, and he said, turned around, he said, it's your birthday, isn't it? And Reagan said, yes. And he said, oh, my God. He said, happy birthday, Mr. President. And he said, with that, Reagan leaned over and hugged him. And he said, now you have to know that Reagan never hugged me once in his whole life. Mm -hmm. He said, in fact, Reagan didn't like to touch people. He didn't like to shake hands. He oh. just was a guy who didn't like to. Mm -hmm. He said, all of a sudden, he's embracing me, giving me this big hug. And he whispers in my ear, Michael, this is the greatest gift I've ever received. I know I get choked up telling oh, the story. I've told this story a hundred oh, times, awesome. and I get choked up. Oh my god! What the the story? What's the what the the story is indicative of is the power of recovery. Mm. Alcoholism, as I've said, causes devastation in the lives of people. Mm. But recovery, conversely, creates these kinds of moments where lives are saved and great mm. things can occur. And that was such a touching moment. I'm not a Reagan fan. I've never been a friend of right. Reagan's, but it moves me to tears to hear this story. Yeah. Yeah. So I usually end my talks with that story because it is so powerful. Isn't it? Well, that day, actually, Reagan's birthday is February 6th. So it was on February uh, 6th. I'm not too uh, sure about the year, huh. but it's, he went there on February 6th. Yes. Whatever, yeah. 19, whatever yeah. it was. 19, maybe 91 or 92. I'm or not something. sure. Not, Did he uh, leave uh, Reagan in the second? Do you know if it was? Second term. Second term. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
Wow, that oh, probably that gave is... him some peace too. Oh, sure it did. It gave him some peace. Well, when you know you've abused somebody or mm. taken advantage mm. of them or hurt them in any way, carrying it around with you is very destructive. Yeah. So that's why this step is important in our program. Is peace. that yeah, you gotta you know, we send in our program that you have a clean house, make amends and trust in God. Those mm. are the three things we do. Do you feel like you've done that? Hell yeah, I do. Yeah. Sure. I'm a totally different person than the one that we're talking yeah. about in those early days. Yeah. I'm nothing like that guy. How long do you think it took you to finally get to that point where you made all uh, the amends? Oh, oh, the amends, you do it in, a, in it, as quickly as you can. You make a list of people that you owe amends to, mm-hmm. and then you make appointments and you, you just do it. It's a, like an assignment. I'm going to go mm-hmm. out and make amends to all these people. And so yeah. The hard thing is remembering who you owed amends to. Yeah. but. You work on that. You write it out. Because Niall, even when I read his portion of your book, I mean, ooh, he he really went to town. I mean, with the, so I'm curious. I would love to ever talk to him and see if he made amends because he went to Madonna's birthday party in your book and he uh, talked about you know really taking uh, it to town and waking up the next morning, people carrying him out. So it'd be interesting. Um, this person is like uh, a little bit of a hero for me because I love I love Grace Slick. Grace Slick is the lead singer of the Jefferson Airplane. Yes. Probably most of your audience are going to remember her. They will. The city and rock and roll, right? So my story about Grace is not about recovery, unfortunately. I don't have a good recovery, but I have a very funny story. I know you do. That's why I put it in You want that funny story? Yes, I do. And it involves Abby Hoffman, who actually had substance abuse as well. That I don't know. Well, he, he, well, how he died... He swallowed 150 phenobarbital wow. tablets at, with liquor, um, but he also suffered from mental illness. So let me back up and tell your audience who Abby Hoffman is, because probably yes. not very few people are going to know that. So Grace Slick was the uh, lead singer in Jefferson Airplane. Mm-hmm. Where she was, I think, probably the first female rock star, mm-hmm. if not one of the first. But uh, she was a big star. Was she after Janice or before? Yeah, that Janice? I'm trying to remember. I don't know. Around the same time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so here's her story. Her family was a very wealthy, conservative family from San Francisco. Grace was a wild child. Um, you know, there's always one like that in, in every family, and Grace was the one. When she graduated high school, and she was a troublemaker, she was a real piece of work. And when she graduated high school, her parents said, what do you want to do? And he, she said, I want to get as far away from you as I can. So they sent her, or she decided to go to this. Uh, so she goes to this small liberal arts college. She lasts there for a year and then determines that college isn't for her. Finch, got it. Finch College, that's right. Yeah, okay. um, so she hitchhikes back to San Francisco. She gets to San Francisco. She starts this band, the Jefferson Airplane, and the rest of that is history. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally, a, a year or so after she gets back home, in the mail, she receives an invitation to a party for Finch College graduates, party being thrown by Tricia Nixon, the daughter of Richard Nixon, who also attended Finch. Tricia Nixon gets a list of all of the people that had ascended that school around the time she was there. And she gets an invitation in the mail to attend this reception at the White House for all of the people that attended this small college. Because Richard Nixon is president. He's president. Mm -hmm. And so 
what Grace Slick does at the time is she calls her then best friend, Abby Hoffman, who was one of the original Chicago Seven, yes. which were the, one of the most radical, would be probably the most radical group of the 60s. These were guys who were anarchists who wanted to tear down the government. And they, they caused a lot of trouble. And they were the heroes for my generation. Mm -hmm. Abby was incredible. I mean, he wrote a book called Steal This Book. It's the name of this book. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so it, it, they, they did it with humor and, and a real sense of anarchy. Mm -hmm. She calls Abby and she said, guess what? We're going to the White House. So he was stunned. You know, she, and he, she explained that they're going to this party. So the two of them got together and they decided what they were going to do is they were going to dose the president of the United States, Richard Nixon, with LSD. So here's how she explained it. She said, I had been to several parties formal receptions because of my wealthy family. I knew how these, these, it was a tea. I knew how these things were, were set up. She said there'd be a reception line. All of the guests would go through the reception line. We'd be introduced to the president and then we'd move through the line. She said, what we decided to do is that I would take LSD in my hand and when he wasn't looking, I would drop it into his teacup. <laughs> He'd have something there to drink and I would drop it into and we'd be gone. They both like take a blood vow they're going to do this. Abby Hoffman goes out and he rents a suit. She gets a formal dress. They go to the White House and everything is just as she described it. They're in this long reception line. They're moving through it. Nixon's standing there and he's holding a cup of tea. They're looking at each other like, whoa, we got it. They, as they progress closer and closer, all of a sudden two Secret Service men walk up behind Grace and each take her by the elbow and said come with us and they pull her out of the line and they say listen we know who you are and we think you're a threat to our president and they escort her out of the white house they didn't recognize abby hoffman who she was with <laughs> and he proceeds through the line she was the one who had the lsd so he, he was spared and he was the most radical i mean he would have killed richard nixon if he had a gun he proceeds right through the line and doesn't get recognized and there was just an aside that she told me that was really great that I loved. The aside to the story was Richard Nixon was an alcoholic. Richard Nixon was was a uh, an insomniac who couldn't mm. sleep. And he, there were you're nodding your head. You know that? <laughs> he, he was he would be seen at, at late at night or early in the morning walking around the White House having conversations with the portraits of dead presidents. Mm, that's so, so sad. So, well, he, he was wacky. Yeah. And the people that were, you know, in charge of securing the White House would see him, you know, walking at three in the morning and he'd be talking to dead presidents. Wow. So they theorized, well, we'd give him this LSD. He'd freak out, but nobody would think anything was wrong because <laughs> yeah, this is how he normally behaves. He's already, he's already, like, <laughs> he's already he'd wack be out. Fine. He'd be fine. <laughs> Um, that is anyway, hilarious. that's my Grace Slick story. Yeah, so she, um, and I thought this was a cool picture of her because she got a cigarette dangling from her So mouth. she's quite a character. She's now become a, uh, she's, she's in her 70s. She's an artist and she's yeah. a great portrait painter. Wow. If, you're, if your artist, audience is interested, Google her and look at her work. She oh, does right. a lot of rock portraits, but they're wonderful. Yeah. She gets a lot of money for her artwork. She's sure. very talented. She looks the same too. She looks good. I know she got white hair now. She don't she look like the same. white hair, but she still looks the same. She's, <laughs> Four faces, yeah. She got a nice know. face. So speaking of radical, mm. just radical, you know, there because you got on Abby Hoffman. See, I wanted to put a little thread in Segway. there, and I was, I thought maybe I could twist your arm just a little bit. Okay, then we're gonna. Then I gotta. 
they only got to go. Okay. This is the last is that one. The deal? Yes, it's the okay. last one. All right, then you're. It's the last right. eight, number 10. <laughs> Charles Manson. So Charles Manson. Yeah. So, in the. Uh, this is just a. Well, I've told you, this is hard for me to tell sometimes. In the late 60s, I had a friend um, who was uh, incarcerated for bringing marijuana into the country from Mexico. It was considered a crime in the 60s, and he had a car full of marijuana, and he got stopped at the border. And you know, I got to say, you're like a Pablo Escobar. I mean, you got <laughs> <laughs> Well, my friend Phil got caught and mm -hmm. got sentenced to, like, couple of years, I think, in Terminal Island, which is right outside of Los Angeles. It's a minimum security. Is it still around? Yes. His cellmate was a guy named Charles Manson. And Phil, Phil, <laughs> when I went to visit Phil, he was a good friend of mine. And one of the things we, he asked me when I visited him, would I send him a letter, but put drops of LSD on the letter? LSD is a clear liquid. Mm -hmm. So you could put LSD on the letter, they would tear up the letter, and they'd eat it, and mm -hmm. you could get high. Mm -hmm. So he, I had did, done that, and he had given some LSD to his roommate, Phil, uh, Charles Manson. Um, at the same time, uh, this was before my, my PR career, really. This was, I was an aspiring filmmaker in the early 60s, and I got a job as a young filmmaker prospect at Universal Studios. I had an office at Universal Studios. Charlie Manson wanted to get into the music business. Phil told him, my friend Phil, that he knew somebody that was maybe could get him into the music business, and he gave him my name. When Charlie got out of prison, I got a call from the guard at the at Universal Studios one day informing me there was a guy in the in the, uh, the guardhouse wanting to see me by the name of Charlie Manson. I remember the name from what my friend Phil told me. I said, sure, let me come in. He came in with his entourage of wacky girls. They were driving a bus. Is this when he lived out in the desert? Or yes. Probably, okay. No, the Spawn Ranch is where they were living. Okay. So he came in and... and totally disrupted my day came in he and these girls were dancing around he was playing the guitar he wanted to show me how great he was as a singer he asked me could i help him get uh, get started did i know anybody there was a uh, universal studios had just started a record label called uni records they had just started the man that ran uni records was a guy that i knew so i called this guy and i asked him if he would meet with us Mm -hmm. to listen to Charlie. He said, sure, come up to our office. So we walked over to his office. Charlie proceeded to play the guitar. He was a very charming... Uh, um, was, he, was he small? He was a small yeah, very guy. small. He actually got up on this guy's desk and sat on the desk right in front of him and started playing songs <laughs> and the girls were dancing around. He was crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, when he finished, the, my friend at Universal said, listen, I'll give you some money to make a demo. So... We went out and to, did, did a demo. Um, Charlie had met, wanted to come to my house to talk about what we were going to do. Uh, he came over to my house a couple of times. At that time, I was married to Chelsea, who's mm -hmm. African-American. Um, I didn't make any connection that there was anything weird about it, but mm -hmm. Charlie came over to my house. He made this demo. It was terrible. They were all on acid. Did he meet Chelsea? Yeah, he met Chelsea. But he didn't say anything, and he I didn't connect anything that was wrong. We went to the studio, did the demo, 
they were on LSD. All the girls were totally nuts. All the songs were awful. Mm-hmm. When it finished, I took the tape, the, the demo to the guy at Universal, played it for him. I said, I think this is terrible, but this is what you paid for. He listened to it. He said, you're right, it's terrible. And that, I thought, was the end of it. Mm-hmm. Charlie called me and asked me, was there anybody else I could connect him to? And I didn't want any part of him. Mm-hmm. I could see that he was really nuts and, mm-hmm. and this wasn't something I wanted to do. So I, I, I disengaged from him cut to I don't know how much longer there was a year later maybe sometime like that but then in the paper I read that this guy Charlie Manson had did done what he had done mm-hmm. and that day I was coming back from New York I was on a flight and I flew the entire flight with the newspaper reading about this you know this wow. insane murder that I knew um, when I got home Chelsea told me there was a call from the FBI and I needed to talk to them. So I called them and they informed me that my name was on a list of people that they think he intended to murder. Oh, uh, and what I subsequently learned was that part of his whole demonic thing was that he believed that there was a race war coming. Mm-hmm. He was a racist and he I was. didn't know that. And that he believed that the apocalypse was going to be, I mean, he was the Beatles songs Helter Skelter was his inspiration, supposedly. He believed that it was become it was going to be a race war, and mm-hmm. that's the way the whole world would end. And he was a racist, and because I was married to a black woman, he he put mm-hmm. me, me on that list. Plus, I failed him in getting him a record deal, so yeah. I was on the list. Yeah, with uh, the Wilson. Yes, yeah, he you know. went through them, too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my, my uh, it scared the hell out of me, as you can imagine. Oh, and, God. Um, Fortunately, nothing else happened. I knew that there were other people out there that weren't arrested. Mm-hmm. So I was in fear you know, of my safety, knowing that there were Charlie Manson followers out there that right. could still do harm. So it was a scary time and really freaked my wife out. Yeah, as you can imagine. So. Oh, I would imagine so. Oh, my God. So hard. we're ending this on this such a oh, happy yes, note. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so now that you wish that you're getting in your car alone, you'd be terrified. But, you know, Gary, you've been amazing. No, you've I'm been amazing. amazing. Well, I, we owe you so much. No, you don't. No, but I just let me leave it on this though, yes. because we're talking about substance abuse. Thank That's, you, by the way. Yeah. I yeah. Say thank you. So we, we're talking a bunch of stories here, and I, you know, I'm an old mm-hmm. guy, and I have stories. I mm-hmm. lived with a, you know, a long life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but to me, the most important thing that I'm doing in my life these days is being an advocate for recovery. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people out there that are suffering from the disease of addiction, alcoholism, and drug addiction. And my message is that there is help and there's a way out should you want that. You know, you can't tell that to somebody who's happy in the room and pursuing what they're pursuing. But if, in fact, you are suffering or in trouble mm-hmm. with drugs and alcohol, find a way to seek help. You can, when you say find a way, do, should they go look online? Should there are all they? kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. There's 12-step mm-hmm. with programs that are mm-hmm. you know free you don't have to go to a rehab you can go to a, a meeting of a 12-step program um, there's all kinds of ways to get help yeah but help is out there and you don't have to suffer like this it's a it's a lonely it's it's a disease of isolation mm-hmm. so i mean that's what happened to me i just yeah. became more and more isolated my world got smaller and smaller mm-hmm. i lived a big life in my early years you know i, I my life at the end was was small i was yeah. You know, in, 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 I never went out of my house. I was, it was horrible. It was a horrible life. 
And I know that there are people out there living that life today and they don't have to. They yeah. can get help. So yeah. that's the message that I want to leave you with. Well, we appreciate it. And I, I think you're right. All they have to do is show up. Just show up. That's right. You know, just... The hard part is the desire to change, to really have the desire to change. Mm-hmm. Say, I've had enough to throw in the towel. Does mental illness play into sure that? Sure does. Yeah. You know, and that's in recovery programs, do they deal with that as well? Well, that's a, that's a, uh, a whole nother yeah, topic, I know. Topic. But, I don't but, know how to answer that. Okay. But you've okay. also shed light on how the inspiring aftermath of recovery mm-hmm. to know that there's still you're not just missing out on all these great no, times no. there is a whole other my life now today is you. better than all of those great stories yes, that i told I you about yes. that it's so inspiring i am i'm comfortable in my own skin i never was comfortable in my own mm-hmm. skin i sleep put my head down on the pillow and i sleep at night i never mm-hmm. slept before yeah. I mean, my life was chaos mm-hmm. you know and it sounds great with all these wild stories and right. stuff they sound great but I never was at peace. I'm at peace today. I live a really harmonious life. Yes. And you can look That's in the mirror at yourself. You know, you can look in the mirror. I, people love me and I, I am mm-hmm. capable of loving people. And mm-hmm. I wasn't that way before. I got and sick. everybody's yeah. capable of being loved. Yeah. Everybody, everybody deserves love. Everybody deserves love. Yes. You know, so thank you. Thank you. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This has been my. Well, that was ridiculous. That was incredible. And the Rocka babies are going to, they're going to be as, rib, you know, tied to their seat as we were. I, I could barely say a word the whole time. I, mean, I know. That is ridiculous. You've lived the most remarkable incredible. life. Incredible. I mean, he had a brilliant life at many levels. Mm-hmm. He had a brilliant life before recovery and had a brilliant life afterwards. And I think that's, that's pretty amazing. And he's also just ridiculously nice, too. <laughs> yeah, really awesome highly person. intelligent. Thank you, um, Gary. Thank you so much, Gary Stromberg. Uh, and for all of our Rocka babies out there, thank you for listening. We're, we're so appreciative. And I uh, guess we're at the end. It's a wrap okay. for, this, for this episode. We got goodness coming up, but. Subscribe, and we thank you for listening. We really thank you for all of your support. Yeah, we're having a great time doing this, so I hope you guys are too. Thank you you. so much. Rockabyes! behind the scenes looks or more information or just to be part of the conversation please join us at www.rockabyespodcast.com